0: section eight of coningsby or the new generation by benjamin disraeli this libra Box recording is in the public domain book two chapter two bonnoir was one of those palladian palaces vast and ornate such as the genius of kent and campbell delighted in at the beginning of the eighteenth century placed on a noble elevation yet screened from the northern blast its sumptuous front connected with its far-spreading wings by corinthian colonnades was the boast and pride of the midland counties the surrounding gardens equalling in extent the size of ordinary parks were crowded with temples dedicated to abstract virtues and to departed friends occasionally a triumphal arch celebrated a general whom the family still esteemed a hero and sometimes a votive column commemorated the great statesman who had advanced the family a step in the peerage beyond the limits of this pleasance the heart and hind wandered in a wilderness abounding in ferny coverts and green and stately trees the noble proprietor of this demesne had many of the virtues of his class a few of their failings he had that public spirit which became his station he was not one of those who avoided the exertions and the sacrifices which should be inseparable from high position by the hollow and pretext of a taste for privacy and a devotion to domestic joys he was munificent tender and bounteous to the poor and loved a flowing hospitality a keen sportsman he was not untinctured by letters and had indeed a cultivated taste for the fine arts though an ardent politician he was tolerant to adverse opinions and full of amenity to his opponents a firm supporter of the corn laws he never refused a lease notwithstanding there ran through his whole demeanour and the habit of his mind a vein of native simplicity that was full of charm his manner was finished he never offended any one's self-love his good breeding indeed sprang from the only sure source of gentle manners a kind heart to have pained others would have pained himself. Perhaps, too, this noble sympathy may have been in some degree prompted by the ancient blood in his veins, an accident of lineage rather rare with the English nobility. One could hardly praise him for the strong affections that bound him to his hearth, for fortune had given him the most pleasing family in the world, but above all, a peerless wife. The Duchess was one of those women who are the delight of existence, she was sprung from a house not inferior to that with which she had blended, and was gifted with that rare beauty which time ever spares, so that she seemed now only the elder sister of her own beautiful daughters. She too was distinguished by that perfect good breeding, which is the result of nature and not of education, for it may be found in a cottage and may be missed in a palace. Tis a genial regard for the feelings of others, that springs from an absence of selfishness the duchess indeed was in every sense a fine lady her manners were refined and full of dignity but nothing in the world could have induced her to appear bored when another was addressing or attempting to amuse her she was not one of those vulgar fine ladies who meet you one day with a vacant stare as if unconscious of your existence and address you on another in a tone of impertinent familiarity her temper perhaps was somewhat quick which made this consideration for the feelings of others still more admirable for it was the result of a strict moral discipline acting on a good heart although the best of wives and mothers she had some charity for her neighbors needing herself no indulgence she could be indulgent and would by no means favour that strait-laced morality that would constrain the innocent play of the social body. She was accomplished, well-read, and had a lively fantasy. Add to this that sunbeam of a happy home, a gay and cheerful spirit in its mistress, and one might form some faint idea of this gracious personage. The eldest son of this house was now on the continent, of his two younger brothers, one was with his regiment, and the other was Coningsby's friend at Eton, our Henry Sidney. The two eldest daughters had just married on the same day and at the same altar, and the remaining one, Teresa, was still a child. The Duke had occupied a chief post in the household under the late administration, and his present guests chiefly consisted of his former colleagues in office. There were several members of the late cabinet several members for his grace's late boroughs looking very much like martyrs full of suffering and of hope mr tadpole and mr taper were also there they too had lost their seats since eighteen thirty two but being men of business and accustomed from early life to look about them they had already commenced the combinations which on a future occasion were to bear them back to the assembly where they were so missed Taper had his eye on a small constituency which had escaped the fatal schedules, and where he had what they called a connection, that is to say a section of the suffrages who had a lively remembrance of treasury favours once bestowed by Mr. Taper, and who have not been so liberally dealt with by the existing powers. This connection of Taper was in time to leaven the whole mass of the constituent body and make it rise in full rebellion against its present liberal representative, who, being one of a majority of three hundred, could get nothing when he called at Whitehall or Downing Street. Tadpole, on the contrary, who was of a larger grasp of mind than Taper, with more of imagination and device, but not so safe a man, was coquetting with a manufacturing town and a large constituency, where he was to succeed by the aid of the Wesleyans, of which pious body he had suddenly become a fervent admirer the great mr rigby too was a guest out of parliament not caring to be in but hearing that his friends had some hopes he thought he would just come down to dash them the political grapes were sour for mr rigby a prophet of evil he preached only mortification and repentance and despair to his late colleagues it was the only satisfaction left mr rigby except assuring the duke that the finest pictures in his gallery were copies and recommending him to pull down beaumanoir and rebuild it on the design with which mr rigby would furnish him the battue and the banquet were over the ladies had withdrawn and the butler placed fresh claret on the table and you really think you could give us a majority tadpole said the duke mr tadpole with some ceremony took a memorandum book out of his pocket amid the smiles and the faint well-bred merriment of his friends tadpole is nothing without his book whispered lord fitzbooby it is here said mr tadpole emphatically patting his volume a clear working majority of 22 near sailing that cried the duke a far better majority than the present government have said mr tadpole THERE IS NOTHING LIKE A GOOD SMALL MAJORITY, SAID MR. TAPER, AND A GOOD REGISTRATION. I, REGISTER, 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 SAID THE DUKE. THOSE WERE IMMORTAL WORDS. I CAN TELL YOUR GRACE THREE FAR BETTER ONES, SAID MR. Tadpole, WITH A self complacent AIR. OBJECT, OBJECT, OBJECT. YOU MAY REGISTER, AND YOU MAY OBJECT, SAID MR. RIGBY, BUT YOU WILL NEVER GET RID OF SCHEDULE A AND SCHEDULE B. "'But who could have supposed two years ago that affairs would be in their present position?' said Mr. Taper, deferentially. "'I foretold it,' said Mr. Rigby. "'Everyone knows that no government now can last twelve months.' "'We may make fresh boroughs,' said Taper. "'We have reduced Shabbyton at the last registration under three hundred, "'And the Wesleyans,' said Tadpole, "'we never counted on the Wesleyans.' "'I am told these Wesleyans are really a respectable body,' said Lord Fitzbooby. "'I believe there is no material difference between their tenets "'and those of the establishment. "'I never heard of them much till lately. "'We have too long confounded them with the mass of dissenters, "'but their conduct at several of the later elections "'proves that they are far from being unreasonable and disloyal individuals. "'When we come in, something should be done for the Wesleyans, eh, Rigby?' "'All that your lordship can do for the Wesleyans "'is what they will very shortly do for themselves, "'appropriate a portion of the church revenues to their own use.' "'Nay, nay,' said Mr. Tadpole, with a chuckle, "'I don't think we shall find the church attacked again in a hurry. "'I only wish they would try. "'A good church cry before a registration,' he continued, rubbing his hands. "Eh, hey, my lord, I think that would do.' "'But how are we to turn them out?' said the duke. "'Ah,' said Mr. Taper, "'that is a great question.' "'What do you think of a repeal of the malt tax?' said Lord Fitzbooby. "'They have been trying it on in Blankshire, "'and I am told it goes down very well.' "'No repeal of any tax,' said Taper, sincerely shocked and shaking his head. "'And the malt tax of all others, "'I am all against that.' "'It is a very good cry, though, "'if there be no other, said Tadpole.' i am all for a religious cry said taper it means nothing and if successful does not interfere with business when we are in you will have religious cries enough in a short time said mr rigby rather wearied of any one speaking but himself and thereat he commenced a discourse which was in fact one of his slashing articles in petto on church reform and which abounded in parallels between the present affairs and those of the reign of charles i tadpole who did not pretend to know anything but the state of the registration and taper whose political reading was confined to an intimate acquaintance with the red book and beetson's political index which he could repeat backwards were silenced the duke who was very well instructed and liked to be talked to sipped his claret and was rather amused by rigby's lecture particularly by one or two statements characterized by Rigby's happy audacity, but which the duke was too indolent to question. Lord Fitzbooby listened with his mouth open, but rather bored. At length, when there was a momentary pause, he said, "'In my time, the regular thing was to move an amendment on the address.' "'Quite out of the question,' exclaimed Tadpole, with a scoff. "'Entirely given up,' said Taper, with a sneer if you will drink no more claret we will go and hear some music said the duke end of book two chapter two book two chapter three a breakfast at beaumanoir was a meal of some ceremony every guest was expected to attend and at a somewhat early hour their host and hostess set them the example of punctuality tis an old form rigidly adhered to in some great houses but it must be confessed does not contrast very agreeably with the easier arrangements of establishments of less pretension and of more modern order the morning after the dinner to which we have been recently introduced there was one individual absent from the breakfast-table whose non-appearance could scarcely be passed over without notice and several inquired with some anxiety whether their host were indisposed the duke has received some letters from london which detain him replied the duchess he will join us.' "'Your Grace will be glad to hear that your son Henry is very well,' said Mr. Rigby. "'I heard of him this morning. Harry Coningsby enclosed me a letter for his grandfather, and tells me that he and Henry Sidney had just had a capital run with the King's hounds.' "'It is three years since we have seen Mr. Coningsby,' said the Duchess. "'Once he was often here. He was a great favourite of mine. I hardly ever knew a more interesting boy.' "'Yes, I have done a great deal for him,' said Mr. Rigby. "'Lord Monmouth is fond of him, and wishes that he should make a figure, "'but how is any one to distinguish himself now? "'I am really at a loss to comprehend.' "'But are affairs so very bad?' said the Duchess, smiling. "'I thought that we were all regaining our good sense and good temper.' "'I believe all the good sense and all the good temper in England "'are concentrated in your grace,' said Mr. Rigby, gallantly.' i should be sorry to be such a monopolist but lord Fitzbooby was giving me last night quite a glowing report of mr tadpole's prospects for the nation we were all to have our own again and percy to carry the county my dear madam before twelve months are past there will not be a county in england why should there be if boroughs are to be disfranchised why should not counties be destroyed at this moment the duke entered apparently agitated he bowed to his guests and apologised for his unusual absence. The truth is, he continued, I have just received a very important dispatch. An event has occurred which may materially affect affairs. Lord Spencer is dead. A thunderbolt in a summer sky, as Sir William Temple says, could not have produced a greater sensation. The business of the repast ceased in a moment, the knives and forks were suddenly silent. All was still. "'It is an immense event,' said Tadpole. "'I don't see my way,' said Taper. "'When did he die?' said Lord Fitzbooby. "'I don't believe it,' said Mr. Rigby. "'They have got their man ready,' said Tadpole. "'It is impossible to say what will happen,' said Taper. "'Now is the time for an amendment on the address,' said Fitzbooby. "'There are two reasons which convince me that Lord Spencer is not dead,' said Mr. Rigby.' "'I fear there is no doubt of it,' said the Duke, shaking his head. "'Lord Althorpe was the only man who could keep them together,' said Lord Fitzbooby. "'On the contrary,' said Tadpole, "'if I be right in my man, and I have no doubt of it, you will have a radical programme, and they will be stronger than ever.' "'You think they can get up the steam again?' said Taper, musingly. "'They will bid high,' replied Tadpole. "'Nothing could be more unfortunate than this death.' things were going on so well, and so quietly, the Wesleyans almost with us. "'And Shabbyton, too,' mournfully exclaimed Taper. "'Another registration and quiet times, and I could have reduced the constituency to two hundred and fifty. "'If Lord Spencer had died on the tenth, said Rigby, "'it must have been known to Henry Rivers, and I have a letter from Henry Rivers by this post. Now, Allthorpe is in Northamptonshire. Mark that, and Northampton is a county.' my dear rigby said the duke pardon me for interrupting you unhappily there is no doubt lord spencer is dead for i am one of his executors this announcement silenced even mr rigby and the conversation now entirely merged in speculations on what would occur numerous were the conjectures hazarded but the prevailing impression was that this unforeseen event might embarrass those secret expectations of court succour in which a certain section of the party had for some time reason to indulge from the moment however of the announcement of lord spencer's death a change might be visibly observed in the tone of the party at beaumanoir they became silent moody and restless there seemed a general, though not avowed conviction, that a crisis of some kind or other was at hand. The post, too, brought letters every day from town teeming with fanciful speculations, and occasionally mysterious hopes. "'I kept this cover for Peel,' said the Duke pensively, as he loaded his gun on the morning of the 14th. "'Do you know, I was always against his going to Rome.' "'It is very odd,' said Tadpole, "'but I was thinking of the very same thing.' It will be fifteen years before England will see a Tory government, said mr Rigby, drawing his ramrod, and then it will only last five months. Melbourne, Althorpe, and Durham, all in the Lord, said Taper. Three leaders, they must quarrel. If Durham come in, mark me, he will dissolve on household suffrage and the ballot, said Tadpole. Not nearly so good a cry as church, replied Taper with the malt tax said tadpole church without the malt tax will not do against household suffrage and the ballot malt tax is madness said taper a good farmer's friend cry without malt tax would work just as well they will never dissolve said the duke they are so strong they cannot go on with three hundred majority, said taper forty is as much as can be managed with open constituencies if he had only gone to Paris instead of Rome, said the Duke. Yes, said Mr. Rigby. I could have written to him then by every post and undeceived him as to his position. After all, he is the only man, said the Duke, and I really believe the country thinks so. Pray, what is the country, inquired Mr. Rigby. The country is nothing. It is the constituency you have to deal with. "'And to manage them, you must have a good cry,' said Taper. "'All now depends upon a good cry.' "'So much for the science of politics,' said the Duke, bringing down a pheasant. "'How Peel would have enjoyed this cover!' "'He will have plenty of time for sport during his life,' said Mr. Rigby. On the evening of the 15th of November, a dispatch arrived at Beaumanoir, informing His Grace that the King had dismissed the Whig ministry and sent for the Duke of Wellington.' Thus the first agitating suspense was over, to be succeeded, however, by expectations still more anxious. It was remarkable that every individual suddenly found that he had particular business in London which could not be neglected. The Duke very properly pleaded his executorial duties, but begged his guests on no account to be disturbed by his inevitable absence. Lord Fitzbooby had just received a letter from his daughter, who was indisposed at brighton and he was most anxious to reach her tadpole had to receive deputations from wesleyans and well-registered boroughs anxious to receive well-principled candidates taper was off to get the first job at the contingent treasury in favour of the borough of shabbyton Mr. Rigby alone was silent, but he quietly ordered a post-chaise at daybreak, and long before his fellow-guests were roused from their slumbers, he was half-way to London, ready to give advice, either at the pavilion or at Apsley House. Or as a great stroke of state, which by securing at all events the dissolution of the Parliament of 1832, restored the healthy balance of parties in the legislature, questions into which we do not now wish to enter it must be generally admitted that the conduct of every individual eminently concerned in that great historical transaction was characterized by the rarest and most admirable quality of public life moral courage the sovereign who dismissed a ministry apparently supported by an overwhelming majority in the parliament and the nation and called to his councils the absent chief of a parliamentary section scarcely numbering at that moment one hundred and forty individuals, and of a party in the country supposed to be utterly discomfited by a recent revolution, the two ministers who in this absence provisionally administered the affairs of the kingdom in the teeth of an enraged and unscrupulous opposition, and perhaps themselves were not sustained by a profound conviction that the arrival of their expected leader would convert their provisional into a permanent position above all the statesman who accepted the great charge at a time and under circumstances which marred probably the deep projects of his own prescient sagacity and maturing ambition were all men gifted with a high spirit of enterprise and animated by that active fortitude which is the soul of free governments it was a lively season that winter of eighteen thirty four what hopes what fears and what bets from the day on which mr hudson was to arrive at rome to the election of the speaker not a contingency that was not the subject of a wager people sprang up like mushrooms towns suddenly became full everybody who had been in office and everybody who wished to be in office everybody who had ever had anything and everybody who ever expected to have anything were alike visible all of course by mere accident one might meet the same men regularly every day for a month who were only passing through town now was the time for men to come forward who had never despaired of their country true they had voted for the reform bill but that was to prevent a revolution and now they were quite ready to vote against the reform bill but this was to prevent a dissolution these are the true patriots whose confidence in the good sense of their countrymen and in their own selfishness is about equal in the meantime the hundred and forty threw a grim glance on the numerous waiters on providence and amiable trimmers who affectionately inquired every day when news might be expected of sir robert though too weak to form a government and having contributed in no wise by their exertions to the fall of the late the cohort of parliamentary Tories felt all the alarm of men who have accidentally stumbled on some treasure trove at the suspicious sympathy of new allies. But after all, who were to form the government, and what was the government to be? Was it to be a Tory government, or an enlightened spirit of the age liberal moderate reform government? Was it to be a government of high philosophy, or of low practice, of principle, or of expediency, of great measures or of little men a government of statesmen or of clerks of humbug or of humdrum great questions these but unfortunately there was nobody to answer them they tried the duke but nothing could be pumped out of him all that he knew which he told in his curt husky manner was that he had to carry on the king's government as for his solitary colleague, he listened and smiled, and then in his musical voice asked them questions in return, which is the best possible mode of avoiding awkward inquiries. It was very unfair this, for no one knew what tone to take, whether they should go down to their public dinners and denounce the Reform Act, or praise it, whether the Church was to be remodelled or only admonished, whether Ireland was to be conquered or conciliated, "'This can't go on much longer,' said Taper to Tadpole, as they reviewed together their electioneering correspondence on the 1st of December. "'We have no cry.' "'He is half-way by this time,' said Tadpole. "'Send an extract from a private letter to the Standard, dated Augsburg, and say that he will be here in four days.' At last he came, the great man in a great position, summoned from Rome to govern England, the very day that he arrived he had his audience with the king it was two days after this audience the town though november was in a state of excitement clubs crowded not only morning rooms but halls and staircases swarming with members eager to give and to receive rumors equally vain streets lined with cabs and chariots grooms and horses it was two days after this audience that Mr. Ormsby, celebrated for his political dinners, gave one to a numerous party. Indeed his saloons to-day, during the half-hour of gathering which precedes dinner, offered in the various groups, the anxious countenances, the inquiring voices, and the mysterious whispers, rather the character of an exchange, or bourse, than the tone of a festive society here might be marked a murmuring knot of grey-headed privy councillors who had held fat offices under percival and liverpool and who looked back to the reform act as to a hideous dream there some middle-aged aspirants might be observed who had lost their seats in the convulsion but who flattered themselves that they had done something for the party in the interval by spending nothing except their breath in fighting hopeless boroughs and occasionally publishing a pamphlet which really produced less effect than chalking the walls light as air and proud as a young peacock tripped on his toes a young tory who had contrived to keep his seat in a parliament where he had done nothing but who thought an under secretaryship was now secure particularly as he was the son of a noble lord who had also in a public capacity plundered and blundered in the good old time the true political adventurer who with dull desperation had stuck at nothing had never neglected a treasury note had been present at every division never spoke when he was asked to be silent and was always ready on any subject when they wanted him to open his mouth who had treated his leaders with servility even behind their backs and was happy for the day if a future secretary of the treasury bowed to him who would not only discountenance in the party but had regularly reported in strict confidence every instance of insubordination which came to his knowledge. Might there, too, be detected under all the agonies of the crisis. Just beginning to feel the dread misgiving whether being a slave and a sneak were sufficient qualifications for office without family or connection. Poor fellow! Half the industry he had wasted on his cheerless craft might have made his fortune in some decent trade. In dazzling contrast with these throes of low ambition were some brilliant personages who had just scampered up from Melton, thinking it probable that Sir Robert might want some moral lords of the bedchamber. Whatever may have been their private fears or feelings, all, however, seemed smiling and significant, as if they knew something if they chose to tell it, and that something very much to their own satisfaction the only grave countenance that was occasionally ushered into the room belonged to some individual whose destiny was not in doubt and who was already practising the official air that was in future to repress the familiarity of his former fellow-stragglers do you hear anything said a great noble who wanted something in the general scramble but what he knew not only he had a vague feeling he ought to have something having made such great sacrifices there is a report that clifford is to be secretary to the board of control said mr earwig whose whole soul was in this subaltern arrangement of which the minister of course had not even thought but i cannot trace it to any authority i wonder who will be their master of the horse said the great noble loving gossip though he despised the gossiper clifford has done nothing for the party said mr earwig i dare say rambrook will have the buckhounds said the great noble musingly "'Your lordship has not heard Clifford's name mentioned?' continued Mr. Earwig. "'I should think they had not come to that sort of thing,' said the great noble, with ill-disguised contempt. "'The first thing after the cabinet formed is the household. The things you talk of are done last.' And he turned upon his heel, and met the imperturbable countenance and clear sarcastic eye of Lord Eskdale. "'You have not heard anything?' asked the great noble, of his brother Patrician." yes a great deal since i have been in this room but unfortunately it is all untrue there is a report that rambrook is to have the buckhounds but i cannot trace it to any authority pooh said lord eskdale i don't see that rambrook should have the buckhounds any more than anybody else what sacrifices has he made past sacrifices are nothing said lord eskdale present sacrifices are the thing we want men who will sacrifice their principles and join us. "'You have not heard Rambrook's name mentioned?' "'When a minister has no cabinet, and only one hundred and forty supporters in the House of Commons, he has something else to think of than places at court,' said Lord Eskdale, as he slowly turned away to ask Lucian Gay whether it was true that Jenny Colin was coming over. Shortly after this, Henry Sidney's father, who dined with Mr. Ornesby, drew Lord Eskdale into a window, and said in an undertone, "'So, there is to be a kind of programme. Something is to be written.' "'Well, we want a cue,' said Lord Eskdale. "'I heard of this last night. Rigby has written something.' The Duke shook his head. "'No, Peel means to do it himself.' But at this moment Mr. Ornisby begged His Grace to lead them to dinner. "'Something is to be written.' it is curious to recall the vague terms in which the first projection of documents that are to exercise a vast influence on the course of affairs or the minds of nations is often mentioned this something to be written was written and speedily and has ever since been talked of we believe we may venture to assume that at no period during the movements of eighteen thirty four to thirty five did sir robert peel ever believe in the success of his administration its mere failure could occasion him little dissatisfaction. He was compensated for it by the noble opportunity afforded to him for the display of those great qualities, both moral and intellectual, which the swaddling clothes of a routine prosperity had long repressed, but of which his opposition to the reform bill had given to the nation a significant intimation. The brief administration elevated him in public opinion and even in the eye of Europe, and it is probable that a much longer term of power would not have contributed more to his fame. The probable effect of the premature effort of his party on his future position as a minister was, however, far from being so satisfactory. At the lowest ebb of his political fortunes it cannot be doubted that Sir Robert Peel looked forward perhaps through the vista of many years, to a period when the national mind, arrived by reflection and experience at certain conclusions, would seek in him a powerful expositor of its convictions. His time of life permitted him to be tranquil in adversity, and to profit by its salutary uses. He would then have acceded to power as the representative of a creed, instead of being the leader of a confederacy and he would have been supported by earnest and enduring enthusiasm, instead of by that churlish sufferance which is the result of a supposed balance of advantages in his favour. This is the consequence of the tactics of those short-sighted intriguers, who persisted in looking upon a revolution as a mere party struggle, and would not permit the mind of the nation to work through the inevitable phases that awaited it. In 1834, England, though frightened at the reality of reform, still adhered to its phrases. It was inclined, as practical England, to maintain existing institutions, but as theoretical England it was suspicious that they were indefensible. No one had arisen, either in Parliament, the universities or the press, to lead the public mind to the investigation of principles and not the mistake in their reformations the corruption of practice for fundamental ideas. It was this perplexed, ill-informed, jaded, shallow generation, repeating cries which they did not comprehend, and wearied with the endless ebullitions of their own barren conceit, that Sir Robert Peel was summoned to govern. It was from such materials, ample in quantity, but in all spiritual qualities most deficient with great numbers largely acred consoled up to their chins but without knowledge genius thought truth or faith that sir robert peel was to form a great conservative party on a comprehensive basis that he did this like a dexterous politician who can deny whether he realized those prescient views of a great statesman which he had doubtless indulged and in which though still clogged by the leadership of eighteen thirty four he may yet find fame for himself and salvation for his country, is altogether another question. His difficult attempt was expressed in an address to his constituents, which now ranks among state papers. We shall attempt briefly to consider it with the impartiality of the future. End of Book Two, Chapter Four